Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, this week on the show, we are going to explore the interrelated themes of grit and resilience, both massively resonant and relevant issues, obviously, in the era of COVID and BLM and more. Today, my guest is Angela Duckworth. She's a psychologist who was deemed a genius by the MacArthur Foundation, and she is perhaps best known for popularizing the term grit, which she defines as, and I'm quoting here, a combination of passion and perseverance for a singularly important goal. She's written a best-selling book called Grit and has a new podcast called No Stupid Questions. In this episode, we talk about the secrets of gritty people, about how to cultivate grit when it seems like everything's falling apart, and the possible downsides of grit. She's also quite candid about a a number of sensitive issues, including the recent passing of her dad and the sharp criticisms her work on grit have received in light of America's racial reckoning. So here we go. Angela Duckworth. Well, nice to meet you virtually. <laughs> nice to meet you, too. Hello. <laughs> Hi. So, uh, sorry to bring up something somber at the jump here, but I wanted to pass along my condolences to you. I understand you had a parent pass away during the pandemic. Yeah, I did. My father passed away from COVID. And actually, um, unrelated to COVID, but just in the spirit of remembrances, this morning I was an attendee at the Zoom service for Anders Ericsson, who is the scientist behind the 10,000 hours of practice meme. And yeah, so it's been a time of uh, pondering what life is all about. I wonder, as you endure these losses, I would imagine the loss of your dad would be particularly difficult. You know, I'll be honest, I'm going to just, can I, I'm just going to be totally honest. I would say to my daughter, so I have a, a daughter who's 18, and I saw her just after the Zoom service for Anders Ericsson, and I told her how beautiful it was, and I told her I cried from the title slide to the end, like mm. all the way through, and she was surprised because she knows I don't cry that much, and then she said, you know, that's a lot more than you cried for your dad, mm. which is an accurate statement, and just to say, I think that... Um, Maybe one difference is that, you know, my dad was dying for a long time. And I'm not saying it wasn't tragic that he died of COVID, but he was sort of dying for 10 or more years, depending on how you count. And uh, it was a sort of short sentence at the end of a long paragraph, at the end of a long and painful chapter. So I was probably more... um, struck in a way by Anders' sudden passing since it was, you know, much earlier in his life. Hmm. I was wondering whether it caused any, you mentioned that it made you think about life. And I I wonder specifically whether it had caused you to think in a fresh way about the concept of grit that you've helped popularize. I think these passings, you know, must make everyone reflect a little bit about, first of all, how brief it is that we all have. You know, it's so brief. So you could say, you know, Anders, you know, in his early 70s was like 
too brief, or you could say, oh, my dad lived a long life because he lived to 87, but it's all brief. I mean, hmm. we're really here for such a short time. And in, in terms of my work on grit and on trying to reverse engineer, I guess I would say the psychology of effort and motivation and achievement, I have been reflecting, like, I hope this is a good way to spend my brief time on the planet. But my hope has been that figuring out how it is that people do great things and demystifying that process a bit would be one way to spend that time in a worthwhile way. What's coming up in my mind right now is, you know, I spent so much time obsessing often unhelpfully or unhealthily about doing great things or have achieving success when evaluated in the light of the brevity of a human life. <laughs> sometimes I, I question how much time I've spent thinking about these things. Is it because you feel like you are accomplishing things and making progress, but do you feel like, Oh, but maybe against the wrong goals or like something else altogether? That and spending so much time working towards something and maybe not enough time actually being alive, mm. being aware that I'm alive, being aware that the people around me are alive and, and could use some attention and love, et cetera, et cetera. Well, one of the questions I'm sometimes asked to think about, and I think it is a good one, and I have actually been thinking about it, is, you know, what's the downside of being so gritty and maybe be helpful if I just specify what I mean by gritty, which is having this kind of really sustained and consistent passion for a long-term goal, you know, something that might take years or decades, or you might think, you know, in the case of Anders Ericsson, like something that really motivates you for like your whole life. For him, I think it was to demystify excellence, right? He was the world expert on world experts. And I, I really think he must have woken up every day and thought, Today, I'm going to try to make more progress toward this goal of understanding where world-class expertise comes from. And I think this sustained passion and, and also perseverance, like being an incredibly hard worker, it could be that the downside of that is that you're not present in the moment because like by definition, a goal is a future state. Like that is what a goal is, a desired future state. So if you spend all of your life working toward desired future states? Are you not present in the moment? I mean, it was interesting being part of this service for Anders because, you know, it was not part of his family and I wasn't his graduate student. So when all the pictures came up and all the remembrances of him as a brother and as an uncle and as a grandfather and as a dad, it was so clear to me, maybe for the first time, because I only knew him in a professional context and as a friend that, um, he was really able to be present in the moment and go on roller coasters and have a lot of fun. So I think it is possible to be gritty and not be absent in your lived life with your loved ones. But I agree with you. Like you can imagine how like, you know, you have to be intentional about that or at least that you can trip maybe and accidentally end up entirely living in your future desired states and miss out on everything that's happening right now. This is such a rich subject. I know I'm ostensibly the interviewer here, but <laughs> I have a bunch of things to say. Do you mind if I hold forth? I would love for you to hold forth. <laughs> okay. Because there are two prior guests whose 
words are coming to mind as we're having this discussion. One is, because I agree with what you just said, that I think you can do both, but it takes work. And I think you have to be intentional about it. One is the guy named Alex Pang, who wrote a book called Rest. Uh, He's written other books. I'm thinking about a book he wrote called Rest. And his argument is that great people are very intentional about getting rest in their life. Mm -hmm. And by rest, he defines not just as sitting around and looking at clouds passing, although that would be fine, but very challenging activities. So could be woodworking, could be music, could be taking long walks, could be exercise, et cetera, et cetera, exploration of some sort, hiking. And to him, the rest and the work are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that's coming to mind. And the other is the idea of setting an intention or having a purpose in your life and being actually super explicit about what that is. And I'm thinking of, this guy was not a guest on the show, but uh, we've had many guests talking about the power of intention. And But the person whose quote is coming to mind is the lead singer of a band called the Apples and Stereo. They were a great indie rock band. I was obsessed with indie rock when I was uh, younger <laughs> and not that young anymore. Anyway... Robert Schneider, and I interviewed him years ago, and I remember him just offhandedly saying, yeah, well, what am I here on the planet to do? To make awesome stuff and to be kind while doing it. And that strikes me as, in a way, the answer to the riddle that we're discussing, which is, yeah, can you have the goal to make awesome stuff, do awesome things, but to be really kind and awake while you're doing it? The idea of having an intention that is explicit, not just implied, but conscious, right? Something that you could say out loud to somebody, you know, if someone said, so what would you like your eulogy to be? Or what do you think your, at least your professional life will be all about? What theme, what, what's, you know, if companies have mission statements, then individuals might have mission statements. What would yours be? I'm such a big fan of that. And I like that one in particular, which is like make awesome stuff and be kind while you're doing it. What a great, principle to make your whole life around. And I often talk about a top level goal. That's because um, psychologists, I think, are in pretty much consensual agreement about the idea that these desired future states that we have, that I have, that you have, you know, they can be really short term and trivial. Like I got a bottle of water at a convenience store before we sat down for this conversation. That was a goal. It was a desired future state. Like I wanted a bottle of water. All human goals are kind of hierarchical in the sense that if you ask me like, well, why did you want a bottle of water? Okay. Like, why did you have the goal to get a bottle of water? I would say, because I have the goal to not be thirsty. And then, then you could say like, well, why do you have that goal? And I'd say, well, because I want to have energy and like, I want to be hydrated. And every time you ask me another why question, you go up a level in the hierarchy. And I think for these top level goals, they are the kind of ultimate why, like they don't have anything that's above them. Like it is for you, like something that you can only say, well, like, well, above that is just my core values or something. Right. So I think that's very powerful. I, in my experience, when I interview people myself, I only find that a small fraction of them, maybe 10 or 15% could say out loud in a sentence with a period at the end, this is what my top level goal is. But I have found it to be really useful. I had a bit of a brain cramp when I was trying to remember the other podcast guest who's talked about this, and it's come back to me, Thubton Chodron. I'll put a link in the show notes because she's an amazing person, and she talked a lot about this. And I've tried to integrate the idea that you've just described, which is spot on with what she was 
advocating. She's a Buddhist nun. And her argument is that getting into explicitly stating your motivation to yourself like first thing in the morning and then trying to come back to it throughout the day is a really powerful thing to do. And I've been trying to do that. So I'm curious, you said it's important to you. What how would you articulate what your purpose or intention is? Well, I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. Sure. sure. Okay, so I can go first. So my top level goal, which I don't think is going to change, is to use psychological science to help kids thrive. And it took me a couple of weeks to verbalize it with that specificity in those words. And then of course it took me a couple of decades to figure out what that would be, you know, in a more general sense. But um, having articulated this, I, I think I wrote it down for the first time when I was writing, when I was writing grit the book, I was just like, oh, well, since I'm writing this chapter on hierarchical goals and like how helpful it is to have one, like maybe I should try to put pen to paper and, and really make sure I could stand by this for all the years that this book might be in print. And I have to say that even though I had a vague sense of this goal, of course, before writing it down, the sharpness of like saying it, and, and I don't know that I begin every morning with it as a mantra, but I do know that I pull it out especially when I have a question like, should I try to be on the 10% Happier podcast? Like, should I supervise this graduate student or not? Because time is limited and we all have to make choices about what to do and then what not to do. And I find it really helpful in making those choices in a more intentional way. I agree. It's really useful as a yardstick. Everything that comes up, you can measure it against. Does this go toward what I'm all about? So mine, I think, is not, I haven't nailed the wording, so it's not mellifluous. <laughs> it is not pithy. But it is an attempt at encompassing both sides of the grit and the, but being awake and attentive to relationships. So it's something like, I'm kind of ripping off Robert Schneider, but I think that's cool. He'd be cool with it. My goal is to make people healthier and happier and to be as awake and attentive to relationships in the process. I think anybody would be okay with that, right? I think it's actually, by the way, interesting. A lot of people that I've studied as paragons of grit and achievement would have just the first part of what you said, like, you know, make people better, or maybe they'll specify how, right? Like through the built environment, that's my husband's, he's a real estate developer, like make lives better through the built environment. I kind of like the comma and then this very important specification of like how you're going to do it and what you're going to do. It's kind of like, I like the idea of trying to make sure you don't do collateral damage, like just right up front with the goal itself, because it's so common, isn't it? Like, I mean, history abounds with noble figures who apparently led personal lives that were just I don't know, not so great. <laughs> so so maybe the heroes of the 21st century will be great and good. Right, right. Gritty and awake to whatever's happening right now. And yeah, I made a lot of mistakes to get to this point. I've achieved a few things, but was kind of a jerk at many points along the way. And so... To like random pedestrians on the sidewalk or more not, to like not so much, just, <laughs> you know, stressed out and therefore not attentive to the people around me, but just could be better for sure. Yeah. 
I've really tried to do better. And by the way, I find that this is a virtuous cycle. The after the comma stuff helps with the before the comma stuff, that when you're doing it all with more mindfulness, with more compassion, then your relationships get better. And since we're all interdependent, your work therefore gets better and it becomes an upward spiral in my experience. So, which is not intuitive, right? I mean, first, let me just say, to make this like keeping it honest, remember, I am definitely not like fully present most of the time that I should be. Like when my girls who are now 18 and 17 were little, I, nobody in my eulogy is going to say, wasn't it great that she like played on the floor with you? And you're like, like, no, that mom was actually on her laptop most of the time that I remember, (laughs) you know? So I have just a lot to learn here and maybe just practice more than learn. But um, the idea that it could be a virtuous cycle is so non-intuitive, isn't it? I mean, there is this kind of like, well, if you're going to be fully focused, then like, I mean, because the 168 hours that are all given in a week is a zero sum game. So we'll start with that. But I, I suspect that you're right. I mean, is it because you're, why do you think that is? Like, in what ways does it become a virtuous cycle for you? So one of the ways I was talking about is that, you know, most of us, because there's been a sort of revolution in how we work in the modern world, most of us work in teams. I work a lot in teams. Television news is intensely collaborative. And the other half of my work at 10% Happier is all in teams. We have a management team. We have a team that produces this podcast. We have, even on the book that I'm writing right now, I have other people, including my editor and my wife, who's my closest advisor, and my brother, who's also an incredibly close advisor, my CEO and others. Everything is team-based to one extent or another. And you want the culture of those teams to be healthy because it has such powerful knock-on benefits to the end. So the process is part of the end product, Mm -hmm. inextricably. It's right in there. By the way, you will also be happier the better the process is, and that too redounds to the benefit of the product. So that's how it's worked for me. And I say this to somebody who's, um, I just turned 49. I just spent, you know, 48 years and 11 months doing it wrong, and I'm still doing it wrong all the time, hence the need for the explicit motivation or intention, because it's a reminder. Is that what your new book's about? Your book in progress? It's about love, but I'm defining the term down, I think, hopefully, helpfully. (laughs) It's about love for other people. like uh, Love is omnidirectional, so it has to apply to you, too. Mm -hmm. And it encompasses things like kindness, compassion, relationships, attention. My thesis is not fully formed, but it is definitely related to what we're discussing, for sure. You know, when you meet people like, I mean, I agree with all those cheesy quotes about how like everybody has some good in them and you can, but in addition, there are sometimes people who you meet maybe even once in your life, maybe you don't even have a sustained relationship, but they're so good. Like they really inspire you to be better. I mean, I have this, like, and you really feel when you're in their presence that they have a love that like just, you know, apparently has no end and they don't have to be stingy with it. And they're so kind. Anyway, I have a sense maybe of your books not written, maybe your thesis is still evolving, but I, yeah, I really resonate with that, which by the way, you know, I don't study as a scientist. So sometimes people think I only care about 
objective achievements that try to point out that that's because I'm a scientist, so I need to like measure things. But <laughs> as a human, like, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Would now be a good time to steer you back to the two-sided coin of rest and work? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing I want to say about the people that I study, you know, when you study like a, a Lindsey Vaughn or um, I was just emailing yesterday morning, somebody wrote about um, Cody Coleman, who's uh, finishing up his PhD in computer science at Stanford. And both of them have had lots of setbacks and their journeys to be great at what they do are like long ones, right? And I think that's why I study grit. I just don't think that it's easy to do a lot of good in the world or greatness in the world without just taking a while, just like the mechanics of achievement. So when you ask the question, like, what are these people like? You know, do they, are they always on? My general observation of these great achievers is that First of all, they are actually unusually energetic. So it sometimes feels to other people like they're always on, right? They're like, holy smokes, like I'm tired just talking to them for 10 minutes because they have so much energy. And it's also true that I think they're kind of obsessive. So they are thinking about their work and everything they see is actually related to their work because it's on their mind. But at the same time, in terms of rest, I mean... Any athlete will tell you, even if it's hard for them to do, but like they know, like you have to take rest or you'll get injured, right? You have to, at the most basic level, the human body, and it turns out, I think also the human mind need rest in order to grow, right? And to improve. So that lesson is, um, is one that is kind of part and parcel of grit, right? Because how are you going? I mean, you can sprint without rest, but you can't marathon without rest. So I think that's something to emphasize. I, I, I don't want to say like I always get it right or whatever, but look, you know, I, for example, don't pull all nighters. Like I don't work when I'm tired even. Mm. Like I don't. Like it's like, oh, I'm tired. It's nine. I'm going to go to bed and read this book on surfing. And also I don't wake up to an alarm. So I don't work when I'm tired. I go to bed when I'm tired and instead of working and I don't wake up to an alarm and I do like yoga on Zoom <laughs> um, uh, as much as I can, which is nearly every day. And I'm not saying that because like I'm perfect, but I'm just saying like the person who studies grit for a living is doing a lot of resting. Me too, but I've had to learn this. I've really had to get more systematic about it. And I found the benefits of, you know, just I'll notice that I'm getting tired while I'm working. And instead of doing my old thing of just push, 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 <laughs> I will step away for a second. Often. I will literally lie down and just practice mindfulness for a while. And if I fall asleep, fine. Usually I don't fall asleep, but I'll, I'll do that or I'll go snuggle with a cat or go find my kid somewhere in the house and torture him for a second or, or whatever. And I'm wearing a workout shirt because right before this, I was working out a little bit. And so I really do try to be systematic about getting the rest in there and rest defined broadly because I've just found the older I've gotten that I just can't muscle through all the time. I just can't do it. So was that like a sudden change for you? Was there like an epiphany or some kind, or was it more like a gradual? Both, mostly a gradual, but I've had epiphanies along the way of just noticing that I'm just, I'm banging my head against the wall and this is what's making me unpleasant to other people and myself and it's not helping the work. And also that's just having this podcast where I get to interview 
incredibly smart people like you where I just I hear over about what the research shows on these things. And then I try it for myself and I'm like, oh, man, why was I doing it wrong for so long? It's probably that youth, roughly. The reason why, you know, I'm 50, by the way, so I've got a year on you. But the reason why maybe our, like, 19-year-old selves weren't operating this way is, I think there's two reasons. One is, like you said, I mean, it just, we're so young, we could abuse our bodies in ways that we, like, just the body's not as forgiving as we get older. But then also, I think we just hadn't learned yet. Right. Because if we could go back to our 19 year old selves and say, like, hold on, there's a better way. I think we could have even done it at 19, even though we didn't have to. And I really do think like, you know, our 19 year old selves would be better off. And all the people who were around our 19 year old selves, you know, to your point, would have also been better off. So I think maybe like you, I feel like there's something about conversation, about investigation that I think the grand plan here is like, yeah, of course, people will discover some of these insights on their own, but could we maybe accelerate that a little bit, right? <laughs> like, so that it's not just like decades of life experience that, you know, get you to understand that rest is important. Right, right. More of my conversation with Angela Duckworth coming up after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So let's go back to grit for a second. You defined it early on, but can you redefine it and then restate a little bit? You also made a feint in this direction, but I want to see if I can get you to say more about it. Why you're so interested in it? I define grit as the combination of passion and perseverance for really long-term goals. And I got interested in this characteristic or this kind of motivational stance because I was curious about like what other than luck and other than talent in particular really could explain why some people really did, you know, just unbelievable, astonishing things, gold medals and the like in the Olympics or Academy Awards or 
Nobel Prizes. And I wondered whether these people were just lucky and talented or were they also something else? And I started interviewing high achievers and I kind of discerned these themes. And then I was at the same time reading really old stuff on outliers. And um, some of the oldest stuff came from this psychologist named Catherine Cox, who was at Stanford University. And she had access through, I guess, the Stanford archives, thousands of pages of, of diaries and notes and um, correspondence, you know, from what she called 301 geniuses, right? Her terminology, not mine. But, you know, people like Isaac Newton. And she said in her kind of summary of like what she learned from studying their lives from their own writings, et cetera, and biographical facts was that in addition to talent, uh, which they, you know, had in her view, they had this combination, she called it consistency of interests and consistency of effort. And to me, that's what I mean by some people would say, like, I put the wrong words, but um, I mean, that's what I use passion and perseverance to mean. And I have found in my scientific research that these are not at all related in a positive way anyway, to measures of talent, like your IQ. And I think this intuition that your ability, your cognitive ability, even your physical ability or other kinds of abilities are not the same as sustaining motivation to do something with that ability. I think that's what I'm interested in. And I'm especially interested in where this comes from. And, and I believe that um, almost everything about us is malleable. And I want to know, you know, if you wanted to get a little grittier, like, how would you do it? Is there an inverse relationship between talent and grit? You know, I have found it sometimes in my data set where like the, the higher the IQ score, for example, the lower the grit score, but it's not consistently negative. I think the thing I could say that is consistent is that it's not positive. So sometimes I find a data set and they're like going the opposite direction. Sometimes I find that they're not at all related, but I think the most conservative thing to say is that they generally don't go hand in hand in a positive way. And so being smarter is definitely not a guarantee of being grittier. What relationship does grit have to resilience? My PhD advisor was uh, a great psychologist um, who's now, you know, colleague, and that's Marty Seligman. And he is somebody who discovered, you know, some of the most basic findings there are about resilience. And there's a lot of overlap with grit. But um, I'll say, just to recap his work, that what he discovers that both animals like dogs, but also human beings, they display resilience when they're in a situation where others might give up, lose hope, feel helpless. But the resilient response is to like keep fighting, to keep trying to kind of not lose um, some hope that you could do something about your situation. And that is part of, I think, perseverance. I say part of perseverance because when you study somebody like a Lindsay Vaughn, absolutely, you can, you can point to these like, you know, presumably for other people, career-ending injuries and, and setbacks, but that's not all. So she has what Marty would have characterized as this kind of resilient response in the face of adversity, but she also has this kind of a lowercase p perseverance, which is like just getting up every day in the morning and really going to work and like really trying hard. And I think that's a little bit less what Marty was studying, extreme adversity and like how you do, but more like, hey, it's Tuesday. Like, are you going to go to Netflix and chill, or are you going to like actually work on your weaknesses? So it's part of perseverance. It's not all perseverance. And it's absolutely not the same as passion. I think there are a lot of people who are extremely resilient, but they're desperate to find a direction in their life. And that's why I think 
Catherine Cox's early observation that to do something great, you also have to have something which you stay interested in, that you stay guided by, maybe not its particulars, you know, maybe one project ends and another begins, but there's a theme of what you're trying to um, do in your life. How do you think about grit now in this pandemic and all of the other major issues that have either come along with it or come at the same time, like the economic issues, the racial issues, then, of course, the political issues layered on top of all of that. <laughs> it is an interesting time, is it not, historically? And I have to say, a colleague of mine said very recently, like, I have never been as stressed as I am right now. She recognized that she's very privileged in many ways. And I thought to myself, well, I'm also very privileged in many ways. And I am also more stressed than I have been in recent memory, at least. Um, so um, I will say that it's a historic time. The part of history that I find maybe in a way most relevant to grit or make, it's making me think the most is actually the racial reckoning of this country. You know, I've spent some time reading blog posts and essays about how grit is racist. And this notion that the work that I do could actually be bad and also setting back groups of people in, in this country who wouldn't deserve that, you know, um, I mean, I'll just say I'm human. So I was like defensive and, you know, when I'm, I mean, defensive to whom just like while I'm reading things on my computer, but reading things about, you know, how the notion of working hard and overcoming setbacks could be racist. You know, after I got over the defensiveness, I think actually requires some conversation. So, so I think what this perspective is saying is that when you're preaching the gospel of working hard and staying with goals and so forth, you are maybe obfuscating, ignoring, neglecting, undermining attention to structural inequality, racism. And I think I can appreciate that perspective. Like, I understand, like, why there could be frustration. And I think the better angels of my nature would be to stand up and say, first of all, it's certainly not at all what my intention was. It's also not, it's not something I can say, like, well, it's not my problem. Like, you know, if you write a book on grit, then I think you have a responsibility to talk about what, what you mean and what you don't mean. And if anything, what I would like to say is that when people achieve great things in life, it is because they've had support and opportunity, a fair shake, a helping hand, a benefit of the doubt. And I agree personally, I think there is structural racism in this country, structural inequality, lack of opportunity, that's unfair. So after I got over my initial defensiveness, I've been really trying to be a better person and not be small. You know, I, I often think like, what would Michelle Obama do? And then I'm like, okay, definitely something that would be better than what I would do. Maybe I'll just do what she would have done instead of what I would do. <laughs> and I think like Michelle Obama would listen and stand up and say like, you're right. We certainly don't want to obscure the, the fact that, you know, people are on very uneven ground here and we should be doing something about it now. It's hard to take criticism. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have a Twitter feed, so I take criticism. Who criticizes you? What could be criticism? Like, I can't imagine. Uh, 
I'm sure the people who listen to this show regularly know what I'm about to say, which is that I had a 360 review that I've talked about a lot on this show. It was two years ago, and it was devastating. Do you know what a 360 review is? I do. I do. Okay, so what happened? It was just 17 people giving hour-long anonymous qualitative interviews to a really sensitive coaching firm, and I got a 41-page report, and it would be too long for me to list all of the deficiencies identified, but they included, you know, an impatience, dismissiveness, stubbornness, what else, emotional guardedness. Those are the biggies, mm-hmm. if I recall. And so it's hard to take criticism and the criticism you've received that you're overlooking structural issues to hear that now I imagine is really hard to hear and so does it require a a rethinking of your argument you know if I'm listening to this and I am a somebody I'm I don't think <laughs> I, I think the structures of our society all work to my advantage but if I'm somebody t- who does not fit the bill, you know, I I just say a female or a trans woman or a black person or a, a Latinx person, and I aspire to grit and I aspire to greatness, but I do have evidence that the world is not working in my favor. How can I do what you're saying while also not denying the reality? It's um, something that I decided that I would do what I know how to do, which is to write something about. And I wrote an essay called, well, first I called it the big picture because I wanted to say that when you zero in with your psychological microscope on what the motivations, the mindsets, the values of a gritty person are, you miss the bigger picture, which is like that person is located in a place, in a society, in a culture. And if you only zone in on the person and what's going on between their ears, then you're missing the bigger picture. Then I retitled it both and because I wanted to say that a lot of times as human beings, we naturally gravitate to either or explanations, like either it's grit or it's talent, either it's what the person does or it's societal structures. And I wanted to say as a scientist, not that I think what I said before was wrong, but it's incomplete. If It certainly wasn't intended to say like, this was everything, but I should be more intentional and say like both what an individual does in their life and the societal structures, which are to some extent beyond their control, like they both matter. It got rejected, it got rejected from the Atlantic, it got rejected from New York Times. I sent it a bunch of other places. Like we were like, oh, it's too long. And well, whatever, sometimes I just didn't get any reply and I should try harder and maybe I (laughs) I just need to revise it if it wasn't well-written. But I, I think it is important. And I have been hanging out a little bit more with sociologists Psychologists study, they really do study what happens between the ears. Like that's what a psychologist does as a craft, right? Like that's what I'm trained to do. Sociologists study society as a unit of analysis or, you know, social groups. And so I've been trying to learn a little bit more from my sociology friends. And they're, they're very patient because, you know, it is probably frustrating to them sometimes to have their perspective like omitted. Just getting back into putting myself in the in the shoes of somebody for whom the structures are at least arguably working in ways that can inhibit your potential. Grit is still available 
to you, but I guess how to operationalize this, how to hold a gritty attitude and a point of view while also not blinding yourself to the societal structures. But then also, I would imagine, is it possible that if you got too fixated on the unfairness baked into the society, it would hold you back from your goal? This seems tough to navigate. It's really tough. And I'm not going to pretend that I have the answers, but I'll tell you what I've been thinking about, right? Like when I said that the mind goes to either or explanations, you know, like either it's this or it's that, right? It's a lot harder, frankly, to consider both and. It's a lot harder to say to your own children, right? Like both things that are out there, you know, how people immediately perceive you, right? Based on what you look like, is that both is like is real and consequential and what you do matters. Like it's very hard, right? It's, it's a kind of easier to say either or, right? So now we've got all this complexity and like, how do they both matter? And do they interact with each other? So I am of the view that if you could try to hold in your mind that both matter, you know, both structural issues and individual actions, then you will both be more accurate, by the way. And I think you will do what I think I aspire to, but I'm not saying that I do. Or like, which is there are people who are really great, they're hardworking, and they're compassionate, right? Which is actually kind of why I like the um, your top level goals. It's that you do try to actually understand, you know, other people's positions and not pass judgment, right? So like to be compassionate, to really hold both in mind. It's very hard because I too am kind of like lapsing into kind of like, well, just try harder. That's not right. If you can communicate both, and if you can hold both in your own mind, I think you're you're definitely a better person. Let's broaden out just a little bit to talk about so many people, whether you're in a marginalized group or not, are struggling right now because they may be sick, they may know somebody, as you do, who's been sick with really difficult outcomes in many cases, may have lost a job, may be worried about losing a job, may have lost their business. People's dreams are crumbling. What are your thoughts about the application or development of grit in this context? Yeah, I I know that this quote that I love was misattributed to Plato many times. And Plato scholars say it doesn't sound at all like Plato, but I just love this quote. So whoever said it, be kind to all you meet for each carries their own heavy burden. It's a great thing to remember, even if Plato didn't say it. And when you walk by like a boarded up storefront or like a restaurant that closed, I mean, just, you know, and all the invisible tragedies, like you just don't know. I mean, you don't know. I really, really, I was struck by that quote the first time I heard it and I'm thinking about it like every day of this pandemic. That's compassion, right? But in terms of grit, we were talking about our top level goals and I think they might be helpful if you are that person who has had a, a really serious setback. I'm kind of a food person. Like I was never a chef and I'm, I, whatever, I don't even go out to eat that much, but I just, I don't know why I'm like super interested in food. I've read like a million food memoirs. I read all those books that chefs write. So of course I'm like reading the food section of the newspaper and, and I'm reading these like first person stories of restaurant owners who's like, you know, they've just worked so hard and like, I can't imagine what it's like to board up your restaurant and then to declare bankruptcy. The reason I think that this top level goal could be potentially helpful in these times is because 
If you ask a person who had a restaurant, why did you have a restaurant? I don't think they would say like, oh, it's just an end in itself. Like it was the whole top level goal. There's nothing above that. I think above that is probably something like I want to help people. Like I, you know, food is love or, you know, like I want to feed people's bodies and their souls or something, you know, and I, I do wonder whether appealing to your higher level goals might help you be flexible and think like, well, the thing that I've been working on for 10 years is not working out, probably not through my own missteps, but because of the coronavirus and economic circumstances, what else could I do? When I was reading about this Hawaiian restaurant in my hometown of Philadelphia, it was called Poi Dog, and it closed its doors. And the article was so beautifully written. And then as I'm reading this article by, by the owner and chef, it mentioned that she was now trying to, you know, do some community organizing around food, help the people who had been working at her restaurant. She's promoting them and she was doing food writing, which she, of course, can do. And so I know that sounds a little Pollyanna, but I do think it's right. I think that we should ask ourselves, like, what are we trying to do? And is there another way? So if I'm hearing you having this top level goal, which is where we began early on in this discussion, is a way to develop grit. Are there other ways to develop grit, given that you said that you believe that everything about us is malleable? Hmm. I'm trying. I won't say that I've made a lot of progress, but I I decided last year, since I have tenure, (laughs) um, and I have a little liberty to do what I think is really the right thing, not just to like crank on or push on with like, you know, one or two more studies, but to actually do something a little unusual, which is I tried to merge my teaching, I I teach undergraduates with my, my research ideas for building grit. So I developed this class called Grit Lab, and it's 14 weeks because that's how long a semester is. And then every week, there's a topic uh, like goal setting and planning like the psychology of stress and failure, interest, you know, where your interests come from, values. And I have an assignment every week, which is in a way what I would have done a random assignment experiment on, right? Except for in this case, there's no control group. So I taught it for the first time in the spring. By the way, pandemic happened in the middle of our class. So that was an interesting experiment even of itself. And I'm teaching again this fall. And I think the general theme is, is this. I mean, I'll let you in on what I think I don't know, it's a secret formula. So I've been thinking, you know, as I'm teaching this class, and actually, honestly, this is all I think about, um, what does change us? What is the cocktail that, that is more likely to change us for good? And my hypothesis is that it's got four parts. One is that we're, we change when we've had a, an emotional experience, not just reading a book, but like really experiencing something, you know, like a a good thing or a bad thing, but something which is like, as Walter Michel, the great psychologist who um, is no longer with us, but he would say like a hot experience, right? Like something that's not a cold experience. So I've been trying to give my students actual experiences, like instead of just reading about failure, which we do, they have to go out and fail something. Like it's like literally assignment is to go fail something and feel, feel what failure is like. So one is an experience. The second one is the reading and the thinking. I, I actually think that like, This conversation, which is in a way a cold conversation, right? Because we're talking about life. We're talking about death. We're not experiencing things maybe viscerally. But I still think it's helpful because I think this level of like kind of metacognitive sort of like reflection is really important. And so I tell them like, okay, well, here's the science of failure. Like here's what happens when we do random assignment experiments on failure, et cetera. So that's the second element. 
The third is um, writing. I think that reflection through writing and also conversation, because that's built into the course too, I think that is a way of us processing. And maybe you felt this way about writing your books. I feel that way. I don't feel like I've ever thought about something until I've really written about it. So there's a writing component. So every week the students have to write about the experiment that they did that hopefully, you know, created an emotion in them or a real like visceral feeling. They reflect also on the readings that they've been um, doing from scientific articles. And then the fourth element is modeling. So, you know, it's amazing how much you can learn on YouTube because it's like all you do is like you watch somebody change a gasket or like bake a cake and like it's worth a million pages of text, right? So I think they need to be, my students, like need to be shown a model like this, right? So if I say, you know, it's a wonderful thing to write a gratitude letter to somebody who's been a mentor to you and I talk to them about it, they they read about it, they read about the science of gratitude, you know, it's important that they have a model for that. So I will like videotape myself doing it or have other ways to model. So that's the cocktail I've come up with. Is there a fifth element? Is one of the things I said wrong? Like, I don't know, but I feel like that when I reflect on when I've learned the most in my life, it's because I've had all of those things. And you think playing around with those four elements would help us in this deeply suboptimal time to develop our ability to stick with it? I do. I do. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's like a miracle happens, you know, you like wake up and you are Lindsay Vaughn the next day. But, uh, but I do think human beings are remarkable learners. There's never an age in life that you're not learning. And you can't say that for all animals, really. Like that's maybe something you can only say about people. So this does seem to me a way to learn in a particularly effective way, especially when it comes to like motivation, not just like learning calculus or something, right? So I think if people were given a little help in figuring out like what experiences combined with knowledge, combined with self-reflection, combined with having very specific and inspiring role models, yeah, I think we could learn a lot faster than we would otherwise. One of the tricky parts here seems to be the passion piece. You know, I feel really lucky that throughout my life I've had one or two really overwhelming passions, first journalism and then mindfulness slash meditation, which I've combined with journalism. Um, but a lot of people I know don't really have that. And I've had conversations with people where they feel at a loss in terms of finding that. So what do you say to those people? You know, that is actually half the course. And teaching these 18 to 22 year olds, I will tell you that Almost all of them, maybe, no, let me just say all of them, they're already very hardworking and they're fairly resilient. They, they're lacking the passion part of grit. I want to just ask you very briefly, like journalism, tell me like about how you became a journalist. I mean, briefly, I guess, like where did you figure out that that would be a passion for you? I tried a bunch of stuff. I actually had journalism and the movies mixed up in my mind when I was in college. And so I did a bunch of internships at TV news stations. And I also went to NYU film school for a semester. <laughs> and it was very obvious to me very quickly at NYU that I had no talent for filmmaking. <laughs> but I loved the documentary course I took. Mm. And I loved the TV news internships I had done. And so I think I wanted something kind of cool and public uh, or flashy or, or exciting. And But I didn't have any aptitude for writing scripts or being a cinematographer or whatever. I did have some aptitude for the news. Uh, so it was really taste testing that got me there. So that is exactly the metaphor I use. I, I say to the students, like, you know, how many of you have eaten the durian fruit? 
right? Which is that like really stinky Asian fruit that actually smells well. It smells like human feces, but very <laughs> delicious. Um, but you won't know whether you like the durian fruit or not until you really taste it, right? You can read about the durian fruit. You could Google the durian fruit. You can watch YouTube video, but you have to really try things. And so I think taste testing is, is exactly right. So when you ask me like, what would I say? The paradox of grit is that it is about specialization, right? I mean, I don't believe people become really great at things when they dabble. Like, oh, I've done this for five hours. Nobody's a great chef in five hours. Nobody's a great anything in five hours. But the paradox is that at the beginning of your career and in the beginning of life, you have to sample a lot. You just can't tell in advance what you're going to enjoy. And then and then even once you say like, oh, broadcasting, right? Like then there's even more titration. Like, am I going to be oh, yeah. on the camera and back? The ca-? You know, right? Like, as you know. So it is a very long and messy process. And I think that is something which people don't get when they go to commencement speeches and they hear that Joseph Campbell quote, like, follow your bliss. It's a kind of a myth that it's just like a thing, you discover it all in one moment in time and happily ever after. I think it's a very long, messy process of discovery. We've got a couple minutes left here before you need to take one of your daughters to a pediatrician appointment. <laughs> yeah. But you have a new podcast. Can you? It's called No Stupid Questions? That is correct. It is with, uh, you know, Stephen Dubner, right? You know, I know he wrote, he's a co-author of Freakonomics, but I don't know it that I know him, but maybe I do and I, I forgot. I think complimentary things about you. Maybe that's why I thought you guys were pals. But yes, so Stephen Dubner and I became friends at some point, maybe when he was interviewing me, I don't know how this happened. Honestly, I have no idea. But um, we discovered that we like to talk to each other. And so then we decided to put mics on while we talked to each other. It's pretty much that. But you guys do take on very pointed and interesting questions in each episode. That is correct. We try to have in each episode two questions. One I ask Stephen and then one he asks me. And then oftentimes, you know, just the way my head works, I immediately go and think about, you know, like social science findings that are relevant. And then he has, you know, like you a journalism background. So, you know, he often takes things in his, his direction. Do you know the questions in advance so you can prep or do you ad lib? Yeah, we do a little bit. Well, no. So first of all, yes, we, you know, we say to each other, like, hey, we're going to record on Thursday. I was going to ask you this question just to get thinking about it. But I will say that um, the direction of the conversation, like 90 percent of the time is not what I thought it would be. (laughs) That's great. So you're leaving room for serendipity. It's not all scripted. Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody can really have a scripted conversation, don't you think? Or maybe they can, but it sounds terrible. Yeah. You can. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't. This podcast is a mess. Not this episode, but (laughs) generally speaking, the podcast we just talk. I mean, we completely. It's unscripted entirely. So it's unscripted, right? Yeah, because I mean, to your point about being present and in the moment, right? That's kind of being open to like what's going to happen. That's how I glorify and glamorize my lack of preparation. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good. good. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I really appreciate you taking time to do this. I really, really enjoyed it. I I think I know what you mean about being present. I felt like you were very present, and um, I was present myself. Big thanks again to Angela. 
As you may have noticed, we didn't talk much about mindfulness in this episode, but we're going to take a deep dive on how meditation can fuel resilience in our Wednesday episode with George Mumford, who's a legendary meditation teacher and who has overcome gigantic obstacles in his own life, including a heroin addiction, and then went on to work with star athletes such as Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. So that is coming up on Wednesday. As mentioned at the top of this episode, we've got a themed week here, grit and resilience. Uh, If you are interested in developing these skills to cope with all of the fear, stress, anxiety, and more caused by the pandemic, you can... uh, Check out some of our free meditations. We've put together something called the Coronavirus Sanity Guide. It's on the 10% Happier app. I'll put a link in the show notes. Before I go, big thanks to the team who worked so hard on the show. Samuel Johns is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our producer. Our sound designers are Matt Boynton and Anya Sheshik of Ultraviolet Audio. And Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. We get a ton of input from... Our TPH colleagues, such as Jen Poyant, Nate Toby, Liz Levin, Ben Rubin, and uh, last but not least, big salute to my ABC comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Wednesday with George Mumford. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.